Welcome to The Reacher's Handbook, a podcast about making social media meaningful, finding your joy, and what to do when the life you'd imagined for yourself is stuck in committee. So I'm doing something a little bit different. For the next few episodes, I'm going to be focusing on Unitarian Universalist congregational life, which I know is sort of the opposite of what I've been trying to do here, which is think outside the congregational box and make materials for people who are not in a congregational context and maybe not even in a religious context. But over the summer break, I got a lot of questions from people who are in congregations asking if the stuff I've been studying and talking about can be applied as congregations are trying to adapt to the new world that they find themselves in. And it really, really can. (laughs) And I can't resist making a mini series talking about how this stuff can be adapted if you are in a congregation context or something that looks very similar to a congregation. So If you are a podcaster or YouTuber purely and you're here for the general content and community creator stuff, you might want to skip over the next few episodes. I've labeled them all for congregations as the first part of the title to make that really easy for you to do. Also heads up, the format's going to be a little bit different for these episodes. In previous episodes, I've been working from a script mostly and kind of using a crafted narrative of Of course, I'm going to stick to telling stories because telling stories is the only way that I know how to talk. But I am speaking a little bit more extemporaneously in these couple episodes because it's basically workshop material that I've repurposed. So if that is not your jam, no worries. I'd skip ahead a few episodes. But if it is, and if you're from a congregation or interested in congregations, welcome. This mini series is for you. Okay, still here? Great. All right, so if you're from a congregation, I'm guessing you have a question that is a variation on the question that I've been getting all summer, which is some variation on the world is changing and congregations are struggling. And what does fields of study outside our traditional structures, what do those fields have to teach us that we could use to survive and thrive in a changing future? And the answer to that is there's a whole lot there in just about every field that I looked at. I found myself constantly thinking, oh, if only congregations knew about these ideas and these tools, it would make things so much easier. And I cursed that we study theology in seminary instead of marketing and campaigning and entrepreneurship. And then I reminded myself that I understand why we study theology instead, because we don't want to be vapid instruments of capitalist greed. But that said, I mean... People could make similar complaints about churches. They can look at some of the things churches have done and say, I don't want to use anything from that toolbox. But the thing is, tools are neutral. Okay, fair enough. Not all tools are neutral. Atom bombs aren't neutral. There are tools in marketing that I don't think are neutral. But frankly, there are tools in the world of organized religion that I don't think are neutral either. And as Unitarian Universalists, we're used to doing that thing where you take a field like organized religion and you take what is good and the things that are practices you don't agree with morally, you don't use those practices. And I would submit we can do the same thing with marketing. And that feeling of squick you have about marketing, I think can be a compass in the same way that feeling of squick that we have about evangelism is sometimes a compass. And it comes down to, for me anyways, thinking about consent. So we don't do religion that pushes on to people something that they weren't looking for. We do religion where someone has a need and we let them know that that need for community, that need for a place to wrestle with meaning, we can help with that. By the same token, I think marketing that induces a need is immoral marketing. 
But I think it's important to think, where are the people who are really desperately looking for what we have to offer? And how can we stop mislabeling what we offer and hiding, frankly, what we offer so that the people who are really looking for it can better find it? That's all I'm talking about when I'm talking about marketing. So as usual, I'm going to start with a story. And this story comes from right when I left traditional ministry training to go out into the world and learn new things. One of the things that you learn in traditional ministry training that is so valuable is how important it is to have colleagues. And one of the struggles I faced is that for what I was doing, who were my colleagues? Kind of by definition, things that are new and different don't have professional associations. And what a lot of content and community creators do is create a Jedi Council for themselves, which is a whole other topic that's really fascinating. But essentially, it's a group that you make from scratch from people that you identify as thinking in the way that you want to be able to think and able to help you solve the problems you're trying to solve and advise you. So I was thinking along those lines, and I had thought of several people who I thought would be ideal for this, who I wanted to be able to reach out to informally, who I thought were incredibly wise. Many of them had no idea who I was. And so how do I start building that then? if I don't have the structures of a professional association. And so I decided to use Facebook as my tool of choice because I was using Facebook as my tool of choice for everything at that time. And I thought, can I use the tools of the algorithm to take a person from having no idea who I am to seeing themselves as a colleague that I could reach out to if I needed to? Which I know, super, super creepy. (laughs) So the method was something along the lines of creating posts that I knew would interest that person And that would also be of interest to mutual friends who would share them. And then once they'd seen enough of my posts, becoming their friend, tagging them and things, there's a whole thing. The details of it don't really matter. It was quite effective. A lot of those people are colleagues now. But the real lesson from it was how much better my Facebook wall was while I was running those experiments. So... Not every day, because I was doing a lot of different things. But often when I was sitting down to write, I was picturing a specific colleague in my mind and thinking, what is it that she would find really interesting? Which you don't want to do with everything you write, but doing it sometimes gives things a kind of focus. So it takes you from, what do I feel like saying? Oh, here's my breakfast. Here's a funny meme. Here's blah, blah, blah. To thinking about a type of person and what you can provide to that type of person. And so this concept, when used in marketing, is called an ideal customer profile. And it means that what you're offering becomes more focused and of greater appeal to a specific audience. So let's say you're selling cars. What's the problem you're solving? You're getting people from point A to point B. Who are you solving that problem for? Well, if you're selling minivans, you're solving it for a different person than if you're selling sports cars. And so the marketer will ask you to get a really clear picture in your mind of who your ideal customer profile is. And that allows you to really focus your outreach and in some cases, focus your product, although that's not what the marketer would be helping you with. Now, your ideal customer profile shouldn't actually be a real person. In my case, I was doing bridge building within a fairly small community and that I hope differentiates it from stalking. But for me, having as tangible a picture as possible, and now I use a fictional person in my mind of who I'm talking to really helps me focus what I'm doing. And I think that the same is often true for congregations. So this is an idea congregations already know. The place where they deviate from, I think, some of the wisdom of marketing is in how they create their 
ideal customer profile. So usually when congregations get together and think, who do we want to reach out to? They think, who do we wish we had more of in our congregations? And so that tends to look like, well, I'd like young families with many children, but lots of spare time. And I would like lots of cultural and economic diversity, but of course, people who are able to pledge at the rate that will keep our programs going in the way they currently are. And you develop a problem of an unrealistic avatar of a person. But worse than that, you're not targeting the people for whom the thing you offer is really valuable which a marketer would probably tell you is a bit of a strategic error. Not that marketers don't ever help companies expand into new customer bases, but that's not the low-hanging fruit. But what I would say is that's a bit of a moral error because it treats new potential congregants kind of like things. Like we would like one of these and we would like one of these and we would like one of these. And if we had those, then we would be like this and we would be like this. And I think taken too far, that goes against the attitude of service that I think we want to have of who really needs what we're offering and who can we be of benefit to. Now, the counter argument is that we want congregations that last long into the future. And if we don't have any young people, then we have a pretty imminent expiry date. And I think there's two flaws with this line of argument. The first is that, again, that's using potential congregants as tools, which I don't think is in line with our values. But secondly, I think it's flawed logic. So if you have a congregation that is vital and exciting and interesting to newly retired people, that is a way more effective volunteer strategy than being interesting to 25 or 30 year olds, because newly retired people have way more spare time, way more spare financial resources and often a much stronger sense of uh, institution and volunteering and an attitude towards those things that's more consistent with congregational life. And I know whereof I speak, because when my kids were young, the Saskatoon congregation, half of its attendance sometimes was RE. Sometimes the basement, now that included parents who were there as well, was larger than the upstairs service. And that was fabulous in some ways and really challenging in others because despite our very best efforts and working really hard as parents, we couldn't shoulder the same kind of volunteer load as retired people could do. And we weren't in the same financial position either. And as a side note, when I was looking for a village in which to raise my child, which was how I saw Unitarian Universalism when I first found it, the fact that the Saskatoon congregation also had a very vibrant community of wise elders who were active and engaged was a huge draw for me. And I think had those elders seen themselves as somehow less valuable because they were elders, which they did not, <laughs> I think that would have made it less of a draw. Like people are drawn to people who value who they are and what they're offering. And I think congregations do themselves a huge disservice when they fail to value vibrant older community. Now, of course, age isn't the only kind of diversity that we want to be talking about. There's also socioeconomic diversity and race and cultural diversity. And there is a real moral argument to be made for shouldn't we be aiming for congregations that have more of those types of diversity? I absolutely agree with that. I don't think that that's a problem that is solved using marketing skills, which makes it outside the realm of what I'm discussing today. I think that's a problem that's solved by looking at things like our economic models and our larger structures, which I think is a really valuable conversation, but 
not actually the thing that I'm focusing on today. Once you have an idea of your ideal customer, whether or not it was who Liz told you it should be, the next thing a marketer would ask you is where do you find your ideal customer? Where do they usually hang out? And then they would ask you, what's the pathway from there to them buying your service or product? Or in church terms, how does that connect to the path to membership? If you are thinking in terms of membership as being the end goal, which I'm not sure you should be, but that again is a topic for another podcast. So I'm going to illustrate the idea of a customer pathway using an example from the Saskatoon church from a few years ago. So my friend Catherine is very passionate about community singing. And she's very passionate about community singing for anyone who wants to sing. So whether or not you can read music, whether or not you have a good singing voice, whether or not you're on key, and whether or not you wish to be involved in a church, Catherine's values are that you should be able to sing in community if you want to. Which is awesome, especially for people like me who can't sing particularly well. And so a few years ago, she started Circle of Song in Saskatoon, which met every second Thursday night, and which was connected with and partnered with the Unitarian Congregation of Saskatoon, but was not a church program. So that meant you didn't need to be a part of the congregation, but it also meant you didn't need to ever be thinking in terms of becoming a part of the congregation. There were a lot of people who came for Circle of Song who were only ever involved in Circle of Song. But we'd put this effort into learning these songs and we'd want to take them places. And sometimes that was Sunday morning. Often it was social action gatherings of some kind, rallies to support this or rallies to speak out against whatever. A lot of our songs were really social justice oriented, but a lot of them were meaning oriented and they were a natural fit for Sunday mornings. And so sometimes we sang a Sunday morning, not all of us, just the ones who wanted to. And sometimes people learned about the congregation by listening to what was said on those Sunday mornings. And Circle of Song became a major pathway for new people finding the Unitarian Congregation of Saskatoon. Now, Catherine wasn't thinking about this through a marketing lens because I think Catherine would be horrified at the whole idea, but I was. And let me tell you what I saw using my marketing eyes. First of all, looking at ideal customer profile. Who comes to Circle of Song? Well, first of all, people who like to sing. Specifically, people who like to sing at a not super high level alongside others in a really participatory oriented kind of way. That's a pretty natural fit with church. Also, people who have enough spare time to be attending something on Thursday evenings, natural fit with church. Also, people who prize connection and community over a polished end product, which we're a pretty small congregation. So that's a natural fit with our church. That's sort of the way we operate. Also, people who are interested in the kind of music that Catherine was doing, which was very social justice oriented, nature oriented, meaning and community oriented. Also, people who were happy with the idea of pausing midway through the choir practice to go have ginger tea and chat in the lobby, which was part of how the choir worked. Also, a natural fit with a Unitarian congregation. And so there were all these parallels that meant that the kind of person who was interested in Circle of Song would also often be the kind of person who was interested in church. And then on top of that, there was this natural pathway where some of the time when we performed, we were performing at church or we were performing at social justice events, which in Saskatoon anyways, are very heavily populated by Unitarian Universalists. So to sum up, what a marketer would say to your congregation is, who is your ideal customer profile and what problem are you solving for them? If you want to translate this into church language, I would say, 
who are we reaching for and what do we offer them? With the caveat that the best way to know who you're reaching for is to look at who you have reached for successfully in the past and who you are most valuable to and extrapolate from there. The next thing a marketer would say is, where do you find those people in a place where you can meet a need or solve a problem for them? And then what is the pathway from that back to the action that you want them to take, presumably coming in the front doors of your congregation? So are you with me so far on that? Okay, I have one more idea before we get to the summary and the section on, okay, sure, fine, but how do I convince my congregation of this, which is a whole other conversation, which we will get to. But the final marketing concept that I want to give you is that sometimes who you're reaching for is an organization, not a person. So sometimes you can think of ideal customer profile, what do we offer, who needs us, and pathway, how does that connection happen? Sometimes you can apply that to an organization. So I'll give you an example. Several years back, nuclear power was a significant issue in Saskatchewan. And the Social Justice Committee met to draft, I think it was a press release or meaningful action they were going to take against nuclear power. And it was drawn to their attention that not everybody in the congregation was against nuclear power. And so how could they take meaningful action on this issue without misrepresenting members of the congregation in a way that made them uncomfortable? So they had a couple of options. One, we could sit around a table and debate endlessly and draft a press release that was watered down enough that nobody disagreed with it and then send that to the newspaper and have it not read by anyone. Or we could tackle this in a different way. And so what the Social Justice Committee did was they held forums. So they went to the library and they said, nuclear power is a really meaningful issue in the upcoming election. Can we hold forums in your space using UU values of discussion and democracy and our principles? And then they went to the agencies that were pro-nuclear power and the agencies that were against nuclear power. And they said, we're going to do this. Send us your best people. And they advertised those. And so they were meeting the needs of three organizations. The library needs programming that will bring people in the doors because library funding is conditional on the number of people who go to the library, partially. The pro and anti-nuclear organizations also had vested interests and wanted to send their best people, which meant that we didn't have to create all of that programming. Our role was to bring people together and to talk a little bit about our values of reason and democracy and compassion and careful listening and about how we saw our role as to facilitate bringing those values more into public discussion around our democratic process. So by thinking in terms of what organization can we meet the needs of, we accomplished something that is an expression of UU values. We brought thousands and thousands of people to these forums all over several years. I say we, I was not on the social justice committee. I observed them doing this. They brought in all of these people and not only were the forums themselves an expression of UUism, they also told people about UUism and which kinds of people? People who are most likely to attend a discussion forum on an upcoming voting issue at your local library, which is a population that really heavily overlaps with people who might be interested in a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Okay, so some of these ideas are a little bit 
countercultural. So the idea of the forums was countercultural because we tend to think of our own programs. How can we run our things? How can we bring people into our things rather than how can we do things for other community organizations? And the idea of the ideal customer profile phrased as who are you reaching for is also a little bit countercultural, especially when you apply that concept of who do we actually serve rather than who do we think we ought to serve. So bringing both of these ideas to a church meeting, you may encounter some resistance. And in fact, that's one of the first questions that I get when I present on this material is, how do we take this and bring it to a meeting in a way that we will convince people? And my answer to that is you don't. My experience is when you are proposing something that is counter to the culture of an organization, you are better off to avoid that discussion entirely. You're better off to tackle the issue by having very small experimental programs that are an embodiment of the way that you want to do things because you're not actually trying to get to a discussion. Even if everyone around the table agrees with you, you still haven't accomplished the thing that you want to accomplish. So your goal isn't actually to convince the other people around the table. Your goal is to get the opportunity to try a thing that is in the vein of the way that you are thinking. So you want to pick something that is easily framed as an experiment. You want to pick something that is not at all inconvenient to the organization that you're working within. You want to pick something that represents a really low investment of time and money. And then you want to say, let's just try going in this direction. And then as whatever it is builds, the community choir or the social justice forums or the hysterical society online, whatever it is, as it builds, then people start to say, wow, how did you do that? And then you can share about your thinking when people are legitimately curious rather than trying to convince them that they want to listen to you. And people learn better when they're curious. And secondly, then you get access to some of the stories because culture change is often about stories. So then you're telling the story of the person who found us through the community choir, or you're telling the story of the impact of the forums and the way that it's changed how people think about Unitarian Universalism in the community. And when you tell stories of real impact on people's lives, that's how you start to change the mindset of an organization. You've been listening to The Reacher's Handbook, written and edited and produced by me, Liz James, with music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you probably would enjoy the behind-the-scenes blog on the UU Hysterical Society, which is a written version, often shorter and a little less story-focused, of similar stuff that I'm talking to in the podcast, also written by me. I'll put a link in the show notes, but if you are interested in checking that out, that's at uuhystericalsociety.com. You go to resources and behind-the-scenes blog.